Don't forget to lock your doors, a helpful neighbor shouts across the hall. How strange, you think. You always lock your doors. But this neighborhood is safe. No one has ever thought to remind you to lock up. Did something happen? Whispers crawl through the hallways, and the story finally materializes in front of you. It all began with a 3 a.m. text, which is never a good idea. A neighbor of yours had sent out a text at that lonely hour, her phone screen glowing in the darkness like a lone porch light on a dead-end road. She made contact and consequently slipped out to meet someone. Woof, you say in response to this information with an eye roll of recognition. We've all made bad decisions. Don't go out alone. Don't leave your friend alone. It's all bad. Sliding her key into the lock of her apartment door the next morning, after what you joke must have been an awful walk of shame, she tried to be quiet so as not to wake her hopefully sleeping and hopefully not mad or worried roommate, but noticed it was already open. Something was not right. You surmise they must have been robbed. Now it makes sense. Don't leave your door open, dummies. The second she enters her apartment, a scream escapes her lips, alerting half the building and confusion paints stars in front of every object in sight. The room is torn to shreds and blood spatter dots the wall like an accidental Jackson Pollock painting. The girl's legs give way underneath her useless torso and she drops to her knees with a sickening thud. Not the first one of those the room has heard that day, though. She placed her hands on the floor and slowly sank until her head rested upon the cool, hard wood. She paused for a moment, closing her eyes, and then flicked them back open only to meet a familiar gaze. It was her roommate. She must have been hiding. Oh, what a nightmare. What happened? The girl whispers, only to realize that those familiar eyes looking into her own did not blink. The sun is streaming in on their tiny pupils in a thin golden line. The floor beneath her is slick, and her roommate is soaked to the skin in thick, syrupy blood. If it were you, you think, You'd simply lie down on the floor as tears diluted dark droplets near your nose. You can hardly imagine the horror, and yet you are told the girl is nowhere to be found. Some say she knew more than she let on. My God, you think. This was right down the hall. If it happened to her, it could happen to you. And really, you know now that it could happen to anyone. I'm Holly, I'm Leslie, and we, we would, would be, be dead. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Creep you out a little bit before we get into, like, every theory in the world. <laughs> oh, gosh, I know. So much. Uh, I'm going to warn you all before we start that this week we have an unsolved case. We don't usually do unsolved cases. <laughs> no, yeah. I think because we both are equally frustrated by them. Mm-hmm. And I know other people are too. And I don't want you all to get 
all the way to the end of this and be mad that there's no concrete answer. So, um, because I do that. And so I'm just going to get it out there now. Yes, we have a real mystery on our hands this week. I have theories. Leslie has theories. The entire internet has theories. And hopefully after this airs, all of you will have theories as well. But I am getting ahead of myself. Guys, I'm feeling really pale and drained. How are you feeling? Also pale and drained. I'm out of baby's blood. Knew it. (laughs) My skin is dull. My eyes are dry. And I'm just like a mess. I'm not sure what's wrong. But I think I could really just use some sweet, sweet validation. So if you've not already done so, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does mean the world to us, and I really can't afford Botox. As Leslie mentioned, she already bathed in the last of the baby's blood a couple yes. weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> Our eternal youth really does rest on all of you, but like, no pressure. It's fine. <laughs> Big pressure, but also no pressure. Hallow season is upon us, and the great pumpkin spice latte has returned, so if you have any requests for the most wonderful time of the year, please drop us a message on literally any of our socials. There will be, um, we're definitely going to do some extra October content, Mm -hmm. which we've talked about doing some movie reviews and some other stuff. I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Um, So keep an eye out for that, you guys. And as always, if you would like to be a piece of the We Would Be Dead engine, you can head on over to Patreon and leave a little monthly donation to help keep this podcast going. Information about our hike of horror will be available in just a couple weeks, so watch out for that as well. This week we're talking about the mysterious and brutal murder of 19-year-old UNC Chapel Hill student Faith Hedgepath. I've read a lot of case files. And Leslie's read a lot of case files. And we've researched a lot of murder stories in our time. But this, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this to me is one of the truest mysteries I think I've ever been in the presence of. Yes, I feel like they're just either not releasing or not finding the one thing that will put this all together. Yeah, I think we just really don't know right now. Yeah. And a lot of times, like, if we do, like, something super mysterious, you and I have big opinions. We're usually like, well, this is who did it. Mm-hmm. But this time, like, we both have theories, but I don't think we have faith that we've solved it. Exactly. Yeah, I don't I don't have faith in any of my... Well, all faith. All faith. <laughs> oh, no. That's her catchphrase, too. We'll get to that later. Okay. It's really sad. Oh. While I can take all the evidence, all the statements, and all the thoughtfully crafted theories out there on the internet and string them together like a paper chain until I have a narrative that I feel appropriately aligns, I'm still really just guessing. And Faith's killer remains as close and yet as far as they were the day she was found dead in her apartment in 2007. So let's go back to that day. Sad day, but we're going to go to it. On September 6th, 2012... The day began just like any other Thursday for University of North Carolina sophomore Faith Hedgepath. She went to her classes, did a reading of a Moliere play for her drama class, then went to a rush event for the university's chapter of Alpha Pi Omega, a historically Native American sorority. Faith herself was Native American and really hoped to be accepted into the sorority. She was, like, really excited about this. She bakes cookies. And their rush event, I think, was a pool party. This is the cutest thing I've ever heard. She went and spent just a couple hours 
before leaving is 7.15. This is the tamest sorority thing I've ever heard of. I love that. Right? (laughs) I thought it was precious. She told the girls that she had to leave because she had to work on a paper about the history of her own tribe. Oh, precious. I know. She's pretty great. At 8 o'clock in the evening, Faith and her roommate Karina Rosario left their off-campus apartment and headed to the UNC library to study. Between 8.30 and 9, Faith texted her father, expressing her wishes to make it into the sorority. So I told her she was very excited about this, so she was texting her dad to be like, I really hope I make it. They're really nice girls. I tried to bake cookies and make it nice. (laughs) Very cute. And her father then kind of like had a little conversation back talking about a crisis he had had at work that day because Faith was always a great comfort to him. And Faith finished the conversation saying, quote, Just have faith, Daddy. I promise it'll work out. Oh. I know. I love it. Just have faith was like her little catchphrase that she said. And it would turn out to be the last thing she ever said to her father. (gasps) He didn't even respond to it, thinking like, okay, and he could just talk to her the next day. But she was gone. I know. It's very sad. Uh, The girls studied in the library until around 1130. My school library was not open that late. Was well, mine was, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe they figure that, like, kids going to acting school just, they don't need to read that yeah. much. <laughs> no, mine was open pretty late. Yeah. And we had um, security guards we can call. Really? To walk us home. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Maybe I'm wrong and I just never tried. Maybe that's why I'm getting another degree right now. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, Holly. <laughs> anyway, at 1130, the girls headed back to their apartment. And once they got there, they started getting ready to go out. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I remember what it was like to be a youth that didn't go out until later in the night, but 11.30 on a Thursday just feels inconvenient. No, that that would be right. Okay. Apparently Thursday was like the go-out night at UNC Chapel Hill. Well, because it was probably, um, she was she was underage, so it was probably like the 18 and over. Oh, that makes sense. When I was in college, it was like Woody's was little kiddo night mm-hmm. on Wednesday. Yeah, it's usually that's like a Because that's where I went to school. Yep. <laughs> where we all went to Woody's. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. My experience was different. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Oh, so, so Thursday was their going out night, and the girls got ready together in their apartment, which was like the most fun part of the night for me when I was that age. Yep. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to listen to music and drink like Smirnoff ice and put on makeup with my friends. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yes. Well, that's why you didn't go out till 11.30 because it took so long. <laughs> you were very busy doing that. <laughs> you had to pregame first because you couldn't drink there. No, well. <laughs> we weren't necessarily supposed to drink there. We weren't allowed, but we yeah. may have. Yeah, I won't incriminate be. anything. <laughs> Somehow I fancied myself an adult then, too. College is a weird time. Yeah. Like, I just want to be in my apartment with other girls being silly and drinking and, and putting on makeup. I'm a grown-up. <laughs> I want people to take me seriously. Right? <laughs> the girls then went to a club called The Thrill that admitted underage people who just wanted to dance. The Thrill no longer exists under that name, by the way. <laughs> oh, my God. It's still a club, but there is new ownership. I wonder why. Wait, that was – was that their slogan? What? Like, The Thrill – like, for girls that just want to dance? No, but that oh. would be a different thrill. I, <laughs> so I was like, well, Dane Cook came out and everyone was saying it. So. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, no, it it was, they had, like you were saying, they were under 21 yeah. night. I don't know if it was just that specific night, but it was like 
they would let people in who were under 21 if they just wanted to dance. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they were very strict about other things. Well, it was, yeah, because it was a college town, so they probably had those nights. Yep, yep, yep. Girls arrived at the club at 12.40. Security cameras show them entering, and they just danced. Just kidding. Of course, they also drank for about an hour and a half. Until Karina told Faith she had danced too much and had a stomachache. Just kidding. Of course, she had too much to drink. The girls are shown on security cameras leaving the club at 2.06 a.m., and this is the last visual record of Faith alive. By 3 a.m., Faith and Karina had returned to their apartment. Now, I can only find that they lived four miles off campus. So I don't know if they were walking or it was just a particularly lengthy cab experience. I don't know much about the area, but it took them a while to get there and home. Like this was like, I don't really know the distance, but Hmm. they left at 2.06 a.m. and they got back to their apartment by 3 a.m. A woman who lived below the two was awake when they got home. Um, She was watching TV, and she can be heard in a few interviews as saying that she heard three thumping sounds, which she described um, as similar to like a heavy book bag being dropped on the floor or an end table being overturned Okay, when they came in. I don't know what they were doing, but they went bang, bang, bang. Records show that Faith's Facebook page was also accessed around this same time. So there's... Correlating evidence that that's when they came home, Okay, basically, is, is what I'm saying in a very roundabout way. At 3.40 a.m., a text was sent from Faith's phone to that of Brandon Edwards, a former boyfriend of hers. Ugh. It's like, never a good idea. Don't be texting your ex at almost 4 a.m. No good will ever come of that. Mm-mm. The text said, quote, Hey, B, can you come over here, please? Rosario needs you more. Aha, you know. Please let her know you care. End quote. Three minutes later, another text was sent from Faith's phone to Brandon Edwards with the single word, quote, then, believed to be a correction for the aha in the previous text. So I'm going to read it with the appropriate word because it's very confusing without it. So what it was meant to say is, hey, B, can you come over here, please? Rosario needs you more than you know. Please let her know you care. So it makes sense. That was a substitution word. The aha has like a period. So when you read it, it's very hard to like figure out. That's why I read it. That was the last evidence of activity from Faith's phone. At 4.16 a.m., Brandon Edwards sent a return text asking who had sent that previous text. Oh, burn. This is a whole situation that already feels messy and incestuous. You ask your ex-boyfriend to send your roommate a text because she, quote, needs him, and then he responds by acting like he doesn't even have your number in his phone? Ooh, weird. That's shitty, right? Yeah. I don't fall. I mean, it was 2012, so it's not like you didn't have a cell phone with this. These are smartphones. These are not. Right. I mean, even if they weren't smartphones, they were close enough that you're there's caller ID on it. Like you know who's sending you a text. Right. Do you think he meant like who's sending this? Like, is it Faith or is it? Oh, maybe. Karina? Maybe. I guess that could be. Yeah. Maybe. Hmm. Instead, he's like, "Who dis? <laughs> New phone. Who dis? Yeah." I'm just going to leave that on the table because that is very valid and I didn't think of it, but don't worry. It gets messier. Oh, boy. Karina's phone records show she was also trying to call Brandon Edwards at the exact same time, which makes sense because Faith must have thought he would maybe respond to her even though he wasn't answering Karina. So she's like, oh, I'll text him and I'll get him to, okay. you know, respond, which is also kind of, it all feels kind of like weird and mean to everyone involved, but that's what was happening. 
He did not answer, and when he did not, Karina tried to call Jordan McCrary, a UNCCH soccer player she also knew. So, like, another dude. Because at four o'clock, you're not making, you're not discerning men or making good decisions. At 4.25 a.m., Karina left the apartment to get into Jordan McCrary's car. At that time, Karina said later she believed that Faith was asleep in her room upon leaving the apartment, which is a reasonable assumption. It was like 4.30 in the morning. Karina absentmindedly forgot to lock the door. So this is important. She says she didn't lock it. I don't... Some people in later theories believe that was an intentional act. Right. And other people say things like, you never unintentionally unlock your door. Yes, you do. You can forget to lock your door. A hundred percent. That is a thing that can happen. All the time. They're like, oh, habits are hard. You know what? Like our house, this house that we are sitting in right now, had someone stumble into it drunk in July, like six years ago, because Mm -hmm. Will went out. um, I was very pregnant with Flynn. Violet was really little. It was late. He went to Wawa to get me something that I wanted because I was a big pregnant lady and forgot to lock the door. And somebody walked into our house that night. Yeah. That shit happens. Mm -hmm. So there are people who think that it absolutely doesn't, but like I'm just here to dispel that right now. No, it happens all the time. I've like driven back home to like, you know, being on the road for 10, 15 minutes Mm -hmm. and have driven home just to make sure that I lock the door. And I've done that too. There are so many times when I haven't. Yeah. No, I I Which is why I always drive back now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if my dog hadn't like freaked the fuck out when that guy walked into our house, I don't know what would have happened. The authorities think that he was like a a drunk. Th- Here's the thing. If you guys don't live in a tourist town, it will not be as clear to you. Sometimes people who are renting houses mm-hmm. are not super familiar with the house they're staying in. And if they go to a local bar and they walk or they have a cab drop them off at the end of the street – it's very easy to, if the door is open, walk into the wrong house. Yeah. And it actually happens way more often than anyone would think. And that's what we think happened. But it's still very scary. Right. And it's an opportunity that could have been there. So I'm just dropping that into the world because I I, I don't agree with people who think that that's just impossible. <laughs> and that'll be our next episode. <laughs> when we talk about the person that broke into yeah. my house, but they never found him. Yeah. Another mystery. <laughs> my door frame was covered in fingerprint dust for like four years after that. That shit does not come off. Oh. Yeah, we had to repaint it. It's repainted. See? <laughs> anyway, Jordan McCrary drove Karina to the home of another acquaintance on West Longview Street in Chapel Hill. She put the time of her arrival there at around 4.30 a.m. So this is close. Apparently, this guy just like gave her a ride to another person's house at 4.30 a.m. That doesn't feel common for me either. Perhaps oh, no. in your experience, that's a thing someone would do, but... No, but I had roommates like this. Oh, did you? Okay. I did, yeah. And this is like a random Thursday. These kids go hard. Yep. Mm-hmm. After spending the rest of the night and the early morning at this other person's house, we don't have a name. All I have is other person. Perhaps you encountered their name. No. Nope. Uh, I don't think anybody did. A short time after uh, 10.30, Karina began trying to arrange a ride home. After attempting to reach Faith, who did not answer her phone, Karina instead called another friend, Marisol, Marisol Wrangle, sorry, who picked her up and gave her a ride home. When they arrived at Faith and Karina's apartment shortly before 11 a.m., they entered and called out for Faith, who did not respond. And they kind of figured she was sleeping. Like, it's, right. it's not unreasonable after that kind of night for her to still be asleep. I would be asleep. Mm-hmm. The girls peeked into her bedroom, thinking Faith must have still been asleep. 
And there they found her bloodied body wrapped in a quilt, wearing only a black t-shirt that had been pulled up over her waist. And Faith's body was bloody and battered, and Karina immediately called 911. Authorities showed up shortly thereafter, confirming upon their arrival that Faith was indeed dead. And this is the last time that this story is going to be straightforward or make any sense. Basically. Now you have different, what, how, how did you read that her body was found? Because I know you had sent me a text saying like. I read that it was found, I think that it was face down. Mm-hmm. Her head was covered. Her like face was covered. Oh, I didn't read that. And that her like pants were down. It looked yeah. like she had sexual activity happen, mm-hmm. but it was like her tampon, she had a tampon in, yes. and that was laying out as well. So it looked like, well, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was that was kind of that was all all I had read, and I, I didn't know if she that had, she was. I, I mean, like I read, she was on the floor, she was wrapped in this quilt, she mm-hmm. had her just the t shirt on and no pants. Mm-hmm. It was pulled up over, and yeah, they they said that whatever. it also looked her body looked like it had fallen off the bed almost. Yeah, her uh, Karina said that she thought that she said like yeah. it looks it looks like she fell off the bed. Yeah, uh, and she was also trying to connects like head injury dots there I think yeah. like oh she could have gotten hurt because well it's not but we're getting ahead of ourselves. I just wanted to see if what you had read correlated with what I have okay. and it, it basically does she's mm-hmm. next to the bed on the floor now what I have given you is a brief overview of the events in Faith's life that led up to her death but there are of course a tangled web of add-ons and evidence that we're about to get into it's probably going to get confusing I'm confused but stick with us First, this 911 call that was made and the events surrounding it are an extremely heavily debated issue. Do you read about this? Yes. Oh, God. In it, and I've listened to it like six times, mm-hmm. Karina is clearly crying and says she has found her roommate unconscious and that there is a lot of blood. She tells the 911 operator that her roommate is cold to the touch and not moving. But Never once does the operator ask or does Karina offer up Faith's name, which is very strange. She's not like, what's your roommate's name? Who is she? Like, there's none of that. Karina also claims that she was with Marisol. However, the 911 call features no sound besides Karina's voice. And if you're panicking and someone else is panicking with you, they're going to be saying things. They're going to answer questions with you. They're going to be like crying or freaking out. It sounds like one person. It does, yeah. Unless Marisol went out in the hall or something. And when the operator says to Karina, she specifically says, stay on the line because I don't want you to be alone. And Karina never indicates that she was not alone. So that's up for hot debate. Then, after the police arrive on the scene, they simply let Karina and Marisol go, bringing them to the station together later. Now, this is something that isn't really done either. And other police that examine this case find this to be extremely suspect because usually the procedure would be to get those girls, separate them immediately, Mm -hmm. and bring them in to be questioned apart. Right. The reason being that if you let them stay together, they can collaborate, they can bring their stories together and make sure that they say the same thing to the police when they talk to them. You don't want that to happen. You want to get their story just from them as soon as possible. And that, that didn't happen in this case. Also, there is a neighbor lady in this one. Neighbor lady. Neighbor lady. 
who claims that moments after the police arrived, she saw both girls coming down the stairs from the apartment complex. And she says that Marisol looked visibly upset and had like tears streaming out of her eyes and that Karina was texting, looking very ineffective. Guys, this is just the 911 call. I use this as like an appetizer of what's to come because the investigation hasn't even started yet. <laughs> I know. And I will put... um. I'll find a link to the 911 call. And, yeah, and make there's sure a bunch of them. There are so many. And we'll, we'll put it in our socials this week so you guys can listen for yourself. Normally, I don't – I find some 911 calls to be like a kind of exploity thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't always share them. But this one isn't like that. I don't think it's particularly no. offensive to share. So I, I have no problem sharing it. It'll definitely – when I listen to it, it mm-hmm. actually helped put me back in that place of that age – and just that feeling. Yes. She sounds like a little girl. She does. Yeah. And um, and I was able to just go right back to college and kind of put myself in those shoes. Of- and she is like crying and scared. At least she she's, is, to me, yeah. she sounded mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Again, we'll talk about this later, but I feel like a lot of this case is people on the outside really wanting evidence to fit a narrative that creates answers in their head. Mm-hmm. So they just force anything they can find into the line of stories that they want. Yes. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I know that was a lot of words for like one little thing. But we'll get more into <laughs> we'll it later. We'll get more into it, yeah. My poor brain is so fried this week. You got this, girl. We're good. After the scene was cleared, investigators came in and removed an absolute shit ton of evidence. There's so much evidence in this case, including semen they collected from on and around Faith's body. This seems Therefore, like a very open and shut case, a tragic open and shut case, but an open and shut case nonetheless. Officers took paperwork out of the apartment, Faith's phone and computer, her day planner, and various other items around the apartment. They really collected from inside the apartment a lot of stuff. And I can't stress that enough because it's going to come into play later. By this time, an autopsy was able to be carried out on Faith's body, and police deemed Faith's death a homicide. Um, They also announced that they did not believe her death to be a random occurrence, but an event carried out by someone who probably knew her in one way or another. The autopsy revealed that Faith had died of blunt force um, injury to the head, most likely from an empty rum bottle that had been found in the apartment with tissue still clinging to it. This is like a straight-up Bacardi bottle, too. Right. It blows my mind that it didn't break. Yeah. I don't know. I'm always shocked when things like, because you know in, in shows they always make it seem so easy. It's like sugar glass and they just break it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I I mean, I've dropped bottles like, I've dropped a Bacardi bottle. <laughs> We've all dropped a Bacardi We've bottle here it, and there. And it hasn't shattered. <laughs> I've never dropped one on a skull. I've dropped one on like, on like tile floor. Oh, really? And they don't break? Okay. They're didn't, much, mine but, didn't break. All right, Bacardi. They're very strong. Yeah. I was going to say, that's not how you got your concussion. (laughs) That's how I got in trouble by my RA, but... Whoops! (laughs) It also reveals that Faith had severe scalp lacerations and her face was damaged. Her father said nearly beyond recognition. So it was very swollen and beaten up Mm. and that um, she had like a, a chipped tooth and her hands had been cut up pretty badly. There was also possible evidence that her wrists had been bound. Faith also had her attacker's blood underneath her fingernails, indicating that she fought him. But no one, not even Faith's parents, would find this out for at least two years because the judge ordered that Faith's case and all her police documents be sealed up for, at first, at least 45 days. And that sentence was extended multiple 
multiple times. And man, oh man, do I hate this. I have never seen any good come from police refusing to share literally any details of a crime with the public. And the Chapel Hill Police Department is notorious for this behavior. Mm. Apparently, it's not the first time they've been like, oh, a crime? Shut it down. Nobody talk. They are extremely tight-lipped about Faith's case to this day, even though the Freedom of Information Act has given up a majority of her records. The autopsy report that was still under lock and key, sort of, The only way to get a copy is to contact the police and have them email it directly to you, and even then, they will not send it to you in its entirety. So basically, I've found online as much of the autopsy report as one can read, because people have shared it. I don't really want to talk to the police. (laughs) Mm -mm. You didn't call them? I'll get there. I'm going to get brave enough to do that. Okay. I feel like it's coming. But before we move forward with this long and winding investigation, let's go back and fill in some of the gaps that we missed starting with Faith herself. As a member of the, and now I heard it pronounced, Haliwa Saponi Native American tribe, but Leslie's going to correct me in a minute, recognized by the state of North Carolina, Faith Hedgepath was born in 1992 in Warren County, a part of the tribe's traditional territory. Faith's tribe was a big part of her identity, and she was very proud of it, as is evident by the fact that she is very much, very much wanted to join that sorority that would allow her to celebrate it. So to honor her heritage, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about her tribe? Okay. Well, like a lot of it. A lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's uh, settle in for a history lesson Take us to school. So I'm going to say Haliwa because it's – Haliwa stands for the two counties, which is Halifax and Warren. Okay. So to me, the pronunciation makes sense. All right. The Haliwa Saponi Indian people number over 4,000 enrolled members and are descendants of the Saponi Tiscorora Akanichi Tutela, Tutelo, I'm sorry, and Nansmund Indians. You got a lot of words this week. I did get a lot of words. So they, as of now, they have a little over like 4,000 uh, tribe members. Nice. Which is a, a nice number, That's, but it did not start that way. It is robust for right now. Yes. Um, during the English colonial era, these tribes maintained autonomous villages in what is now northeastern North Carolina in southern Virginia. So that reminded me of like the Monsi people. Yeah. How they like govern themselves. The Saponi Indians, an eastern Sioux-speaking tribe, were first encountered by colonists on the uh, Staunton River, which we now know as the Roanoke River, Mm. in Virginia around 1670. Oh, we love Roanoke. Well, we will do that. People have requested us doing that. Yeah. The Saponi tribe moved around a bit, joining forces with other tribes to basically form what I understand, keep their land and heritage from being taken. Also, like, other tribes were kind of being, like, run out, and they just wanted to keep their numbers up as well. Okay. And this kind of thing was happening all over uh, other tribes who were trying to find new lands uh, to be on and get away from the colonists. By 1709, after years of war with Iroquois, who are from New York, the Saponi and their allies were much decimated, and this was worsened by bouts of infectious imported diseases. A lot of them were coming from the colonists. Ugh, smallpox blankets. Mm -hmm. They numbered all together around 750 souls, so they lost a ton of people. Um, And these were other tribes, too, included, that had, like, merged with them. 
Over the years, they lived pretty peacefully, but infections continued to run through their tribes, and by 1714, their population declined to 300. Oh, shit. Yeah, they were small. All right, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Okay. In 1835, North Carolina amended its constitution and barred people of color from voting and participating in the government. Many Halawa Saponi families reacted by migrating to areas north and west, which had more favorable laws for non-white peoples. Other families chose to stay. Oral tradition and documentation indicates that several families migrated out to Indian Territory, which is Oklahoma, on their own, and some merging into general population, while others were adopted by one of the five civilized tribes in Oklahoma. Over the course of the 1800s, Indians are noted several times in Halifax and Warren County records and other papers indicating a tight-knit Indian community. The Halawasaponi spent the late 1800s attempting to organize its tribal government and fighting for separate Indian schools because they really wanted to, like, control. They just wanted to keep their heritage. Like, um, at this point, the colonists had already come in and were basically trying to convert them into Christians. So at this point now they are, um, I think their religion is Protestant, okay. which is uh, mostly like Methodist and Baptist. But when I read that, it kind of made me, I mean, they're obviously they're all good and they're happy now and they, you know, but I know that a lot of that was brought in by basically us. Oh yeah, totally. In 1896, under the leadership of Alfred Richardson Jr., mm, Dudley Lynch, Cofield Richardson, T.P. Lynch, and you'll recognize this name, Gordon Solomon Hedgepeth. Oh, shit. And 300 Meadows Indians. Meadows was like the area that they were in, kind of like the valley. Got it. They applied the Dawes Commission for a membership in five civilized tribes. Though unsuccessful, the effort demonstrated an organized effort to gain recognition and a separate racial status. These leaders tried to formally reorganize the tribe but found great opposition and little support because many of the Indians were simply afraid of the backlash they would face from asserting a separate status. So obviously there was, um, you know, whites and non-whites and they were just like, but we're like Indians and we're from here and we want to be different. We want we don't want to be black. We want to be Indian. And but a lot of, a lot of the tribe members were like, well, we also don't want to like hurt other people's feelings by saying that either. Like we should just all be people. Fair enough. Finally, during World War II era, tribal leaders took up the mantle to organize the Indian people and gain recognition of their birthright with the help of the Lumbee Indians of Robson County, whom had always asserted their separate Indian identity and status years before, the Essex Indian Club was organized under the leadership of John C. Hedgepeth mm. and others by 1953. They soon renamed it the Halawa Indian Club. With the founding of... We're almost done, guys. I apologize. <laughs> Don't apologize. This was important to Faith, and now it's important to us. With the founding of their organization, tribal members went about establishing separate institutions to proclaim and maintain their indigenous heritage. In 1957, the tribe established the Halawa Indian School and the Saponi Indian Baptist Church, renamed the Mount Bethel Indian Baptist Church in 1958, and from 1957 to 1969, the Halawa Saponi maintained and operated the Halawa Indian School, which was the only non-reservation tribally supported school in the state, which meant that they had to pay for everything. All the teachers had to get wow. their own stuff. Like, they didn't have any support from the state. 
Well, but they could at least, like, teach their kids. Yeah. During the years of operation, those that attended the school were shielded from ridicule, taunting, and prejudice from non-Indian students. But in 1969, the state's desegregation plan forced the school to close. To this day, the Halawa Indian School stands as a symbol of the tribe's struggle and success. On April 15, 1965, the state of North Carolina formally recognized the Halawa Indians as a tribe with help from the Chickahominy Indians. I think I said that right. I like that. Uh, of Virginia, the tribe celebrated its recognition with an annual powwow. Mm-hmm. And you could still go to this today. Nice. They do a powwow every year. There's a 10-part podcast called Pursuit about Faith's case, and I will find the gentleman's name that does it in a second. He he talks about the fact that she went to those. Like yes. that was a mm-hmm. thing that she did. She was very proud of her culture, mm-hmm. very proud of proud of her heritage. The area's tribes all sang at her funeral. Yep. It was something that was very important to her. So I'm glad that we talked about it. Yeah, it's um the the powwows are a big fundraising event for them too. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, there's only a couple thousand of them, but like they have a hundred, like hundreds of not maybe not hundreds of vendors, but hundreds of people that are involved with like volunteers and singers and performances and stuff. But like ten thousand people come to it and they help raise some money. I love that. Um, and then just to end it, the tribe became incorporated in 1974 and added Saponi to its tribal name in 1979 to reflect historical origins of the people. The tribe has since built an administrative building, multi-purpose building, and instituted various service programs. Programs include tribal housing, daycare, senior citizens program, community services, workforce investment act, uh, cultural retention, youth programs, and economic development. Nice. And that's the tribe. Well, Faith was very active in that community, as I said. And um, and so that, all all of those things, she would I mean she was writing that paper mm-hmm. in the time that she died. And the podcast I'm speaking about is called, like I said, Pursuit. And it's by a man named Tom Gasparoli. And he actually covered this case when it first happened um, on like local news television. And then took like a really deep dive into it just last year and did like 10 parts. So if you guys really want to go deep into like her family's perspective and some of her friends' perspectives, like this is a very good resource for that. I listened to a bunch of it this week in preparation for this podcast. I think that it has its own theories and I respect them all and they're well-founded, but I think that there are other ones that we have to think about too. So I'm not going to just focus on what it says, but it is very valuable information that you guys can go ahead and listen to. And the guy's a, a great reporter and he does a bang-up job. So there you have it. Faith's parents divorced within a year of her birth and she was raised by her mother with help from an older sister in Hollister and Warrington, North Carolina. Connie Hedgepath named her second daughter Faith because she believed that was what she needed to raise a fourth child when she already had two sons and a daughter with a husband with a drug problem. Yes. Connie is a formidable lady. I like that. And Faith's father, whose name is Roland, was still very much involved in her life. Like, he had his own apartment that had a bedroom for Faith that he still keeps, like, a shrine for her. Yep. So, um, Mm -hmm. and it wanted to come off like he wasn't involved. He was. In high school, Faith was an honor student, a cheerleader, and a member of many extracurricular clubs and organizations. Her friends said she was extremely kind and generous, basically just a ray of sunshine. Faith was also beautiful and beloved by all her fellow students. 
In short, she was who we would have all wanted to be in high school. For sure. Yeah. Super pretty. Cheerleader. Super popular. Nice. Everybody likes her. She does everything. She was that girl. And good for her. That's awesome. Bates did well enough academically to earn a Gates Millennium Scholarship to attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Faith's mother said she had dreamed of attending UNC Chapel Hill her entire life as like a Carolina girl. That was like a thing. You would probably know more about that than I do. (laughs) Apparently it's a big thing. And she was more than overjoyed to be accepted and then able to attend. So this was a very wish fulfillment for her. Her father had attended UNC Chapel Hill as well, but dropped out. Faith hoped to be the first person in her family to graduate from college. Ugh. That's so sad. After undergraduate studies, she was considering further studies to either become a pediatrician or a teacher. Her first two years at the university went well for her, although she took the spring 2012 semester off. Some sources say she needed time to regroup academically, which she did, and others don't really specify why. Faith remained in the Chapel Hill area over the summer, living in an off-campus apartment at the Hawthorne at the View complex between Chapel Hill and Durham, on the line between Durham and Orange Counties during the month of August. She planned to move to another apartment after her financial aid came through for the fall semester. Faith shared this apartment with Karina Rosario, with whom she had been friends since freshman year, and Karina's boyfriend, Eric Takoy Jones. The relationship between Eric and Karina had been marked by domestic violence, and eventually Karina ended it and moved and he moved out. However, Eric had in early July 2012 twice attempted to break into the apartment even after Karina had changed the locks. Faith eventually drove Karina to court to get a protective order that required Eric to stay away from the apartment. Eric reportedly resented Faith's influence over his former girlfriend and at one point reportedly threatened during a phone conversation with Faith to kill her if he could not get back together with Karina. So he said the words, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Yup. So this guy looks good already. Yeah. And I'm not ever going to say that I'm positive he didn't do it, just Mm -hmm. to be clear. Further evidence shows a rather curious Facebook post from Eric the day of Faith's murder stating, quote, Dear Lord, forgive me for all of my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from girls who don't deserve me and the ones who want me dead today. Like, what is that? I know! A quotation which he also never explains. He's never like, that's a song lyric, or I meant this, or I was in this situation. He's just like, yeah, whatever. I have read no explanations of that. I mean, again, it's out of context. It could be anything, but it looks pretty bad. He also texted an acquaintance asking for forgiveness for, quote, what he was about to do. And never explained that either. We're going to need a little more info, dude. Yeah. Eric was also at the club the night of Faith's murder, and he was seen with the girls, which would be breaking the restraining order that Karina had issued against him. But, like, voluntarily. Like, he met them there, and Karina had said, like, meet me there. Ew. Yeah, I know. Don't do that. If you have a restraining order against someone, it's probably a good idea not to see them. Right. So, so far, Eric has a history of violence, a motive, and the opportunity. Easy peasy. This is our guy, right? Well, not exactly. (laughs) Authorities collected DNA from Eric and questioned him numerous times. And after a little coercing, 
Eric was very cooperative with the police. The DNA test results revealed that he was not a match to the semen found on Faith's body. In fact, no one in their system was. The police had tested Brandon Edwards, remember the boyfriend that was like, new phone, who dis? Yep. And any other men they expected Faith might have been associated with, and none of them matched. Um, in, in some other um, information on this, I've read this very weird report that her high school boyfriend contacted her and proposed like two days before this happened. There is no confirmation. No one ever says if she said yes or no. It's just thrown in there. So there you have it. Her high school boyfriend wanted to marry her apparently. Yeah, I remember hearing something about a high school boyfriend Her dad too. says this. Her dad's like, oh, her, her boyfriend's high school boyfriend's mother told me like he proposed right beforehand. I don't know if it was the mother. I don't know how he found it out. But the dad was like Karina's dad – not Karina, sorry. Um, Faith. Faith's dad, thank you, was like excited about it. So, the whole thing is very strange and nobody follows up on it. But it's there. So that guy's a thing somewhere. There's also in Pursuit, um, they mention that Faith had texted some guy like confessing her love to him at like 3 a.m. That fact does not occur anywhere else. So I don't know where it came from. I don't know what it, what it means, but hmm. – there's somewhere a quotation that said she spoke to a man she had been casually dating and was like, I love you and I'll always love you and I'm in my feelings right now. Which checks out for like a girl who's been out all night at 3.45 a.m. Yeah. Again, those are just two facts that are out there in the world. There is no follow-up. There is no connection to anything. They're just there. So I'm going to give them to you. <laughs> After DNA tests ruled out Eric completely, there are still those who believe that it was him though. And that he had accomplices, possibly one of which was totally down to spread his semen all over a crime scene, which seems bizarre at best. Ugh, so gross. This theory is disgusting to me. I mean, it does add up, but this is effectively taking the fall for the crime, though. Your DNA is found at that evidence. Police are going to be like, well, you did it. So it seems very odd that someone else would be like, cool, cool, cool. I'm just going to do this. Also, it's very gross and awkward. Yeah. I can't imagine how that whole situation went down. I don't know. The guy's like, yeah, sure. I'll just like jerk it over here a couple times. <laughs> what? Ugh. Thank you. That's the noise you should make when someone says that because it's crazy. It is crazy. I've no not in a murder scene, but I've known this to happen. What? What? Ugh. You have to follow that up. I know. So I used to do massage therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I know you're very good at it. You used to massage me. <laughs> very good at it. I didn't do um, anything weird. <laughs> no. And I wasn't there, luckily, this day. But there is a story that I know of. We will keep everyone anonymous. Yes, please. <laughs> but the um, at the end of the massage, the therapist left the room. And when they came back, the person was taking a little longer in there. And when they came back... Um, like everything was fine. They like, you know, the person left and went back to their changing room oh, and no. everything like that. But when she went in to clean it, there was like the way that it was described to me was like semen was everywhere. <laughs> oh no. And I so like the visual I have in my head is kind of funny. <laughs> he just painted the town. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it was ever since then I was like, is this just I don't know. And they were like deny like they asked about um you know, like, like, are you single or seeing somebody? And they were like, I'm married, like happily married. And they were like, oh, like in a another time, this could have been something. So it's like, was it out of 
anger or like were you I don't know that's someone who was like mad they didn't get a happy ending and then just gave themselves their own all over the changing room I probably yeah so that's what I mean like so something that simple and they did that you know I don't know this is some people this particular theory which isn't that someone like was trying to rape her it's that they went in and killed her and then a third party just jerked off in a couple places yeah. to throw them off the scent of Eric. Right. Which then that other party would just get convicted for the crime. That's not like, ha it wasn't me. That's like, oh, it was me. So I don't right. understand how that Yeah, I don't understand. The logic behind it is so strange to me. Also, like, he would have had to do that. <laughs> just, like, walk in and be like, okay. <laughs> All right, cool, guys. I'm just going to—you stay out there. I need, like, however long to do this a couple times— Blech. We're in we're in some territory tonight, you guys. It's yeah. This whole case is wacky. It is there, but there Ugh. and there's so much information that I just have to be like, dump it out into the world and be like, this yep. is part of it. I don't know how it connects, but some people think this, and here it is. So where are we now? Well, not very far, actually. Nope. In November. So, still in 2012, the Daily Daily Tar Heel, UNCCH's student newspaper, petitioned the judge who had ordered the investigation records to be sealed to release an early search warrant in the case. Instead, the judge ordered it resealed for another 45 days. At that time, the Chapel Hill police had not even released Faith's cause of death, although her parents had told the media that their daughter's death certificate said she had been beaten. That's all the parents got. Wow. Yeah. Again, this seems very, very crazy to me. Why do they need to keep everything secret? I don't... Everything? I understand sometimes that they will not release a suspect's picture for fear that they will go on the run. Right. This isn't even that. This is just evidence. Police announced in January, then of 2013, that the DNA from the scene had come back as belonging to a male. You know, the DNA from the semen they admittedly collected in September. It was male semen, so we're really moving forward here, you guys. I can't. As opposed to all that lady semen lying about. All of it. So much. God. I know. From the crime scene and other evidence, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, a.k.a. the FBI, had developed a profile of this man who committed this crime. They said it was likely that he had lived near Faith in the past, had expressed an interest in her, and his behavior may have changed since the crime, showing an unusual interest in the case. And this is... um, a theory that uh, other people hold on to. They they really think that whoever committed this crime is, like, following it afterwards. Hmm. Like, following the, the press and stuff. Notwithstanding this release of information, the town successfully petitions the court to keep the warrants under seal, saying that the phase of the investigation was still not complete. In May 2013, the court extended the seal another 60 days. Is this one of those things that you see in, like, Law and Order or, like, more accurately for me, maybe Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where where the local police just, like, don't want the FBI to shark their case so they don't reveal anything so they can catch the bad guy? Uh, Yeah, I wonder. Right? They're like, nobody can know because we want to solve it. There's just nothing makes sense here. I'm just throwing things at a wall and seeing what will stick. 
in September of 2013, a year after the killing, Chapel Hill police formally requested the assistance of the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, which had provided some help earlier in the investigation with the case. Quote, we're working the case hard and we've used all the possible resources, end quote, said Chief Chris Blue. Thought that said chef for a minute. It's been a long week. <laughs> However, he would not share any more information about this case. So there is a very tail between the legs move happening in their eyes here, obviously. Yeah. Because if it wasn't, it wouldn't have taken a year to happen. For sure. Two months later, the Tar Heel noted that Faith's case had remained open. There had been no new information about a possible suspect since January, yet the case records remained under court-ordered seal. Just no reason. In March of 2014, the Tar Heel was joined by the Raleigh News and Observer and Capital Broadcasting Company, which owns three television and radio stations in the Research Triangle area, in opposing the district's attorney's motion to extend the seal another 60 days. So people did not want this to happen. They did not want it to stay locked up. They argued that the order was not justified by a compelling interest on the state's part and that some of the orders had been issued before the records covered by them had been created, meaning the argument for sealing them was speculative. So it's not based on any fact. They're like, I just want to. That's fine. During a hearing on the motion, the district attorney filed a more specific account of what investigative work had been done, allowing the media to report for the first time, this is over a year later, on what police had searched in the inter- in immediate aftermath of the crime. Quote, 18 months goes by and no one's been charged and no one's been arrested, said the lawyer for the Tar Heel. Quote, the public has the right to assume that the trail has gone cold or it's not being investigated in a diligent manner, end quote. I'll say 18 months and no movement on a case with a ton of evidence? That's crazy to me. In response, the district attorney's office argued that releasing the detailed records at that point would definitely hinder the investigation and the records remained under seal. I would very much like to know what this hindrance is that they speak of. Yeah. Right? I'm with you. It sounds nuts to me. The following month, Chelsea Delaney, a reporter who had originally covered the case at the Tar Heel, wrote an article on the Atavist platform taking a skeptical look at the sealing of the case. Thank you. It's nuts. She speculated that the seal's real purpose, and here's where we get to it, was to conceal early missteps by the Chapel Hill police, who might also not have been competent enough to handle the investigation by themselves, like I said before. They didn't want somebody else to do it, but they weren't very good at it. The town's court filings, she noted, revealed that after the first two months of the investigation, no new search warrants had been sought. Quote, we have to ask, how hot is it? End quote, asked one of the lawyers representing the media. So that's like, they, they, they hadn't kept going. They, they weren't still doing stuff. They just stopped, but they didn't want anybody to know what they had found. I hate that. I do too. This part makes me really mad. Delaney talked to the residents of the apartments at Hawthorne at The View. So these are the people that lived in their same complex. And they told her that during the preceding summer, they strongly suspected the domestic violence later reported between Karina and Eric. So apparently they were loudly violent in the apartment complex. And they thought the police presence on the day the body was found was related to that until they learned otherwise. So people that lived in their apartment, they were like, oh, that guy probably came back and beat up his girlfriend. Oh. Right. So they immediately thought it was him. They didn't think it was Faith, though. They thought it might have been Karina who was injured. 
Two of the neighbors told Delaney that while the police sealed off the four-unit block where Faith and Karen lived with crime scene tape, they only searched the women's apartment and not any of the others in it. Nor did they search the wood behind the woods behind the apartments, and they only returned later to search one other apartment in the complex. They did not canvass the area either never knocking on doors and asking residents what they may have seen. The police also left Faith's car unsecured while they searched the apartment, so anybody could have gotten into that. So now we're getting somewhere. And this starts to remind me a lot of the Cheshire murders, in that the cops just plainly didn't do their job, yet they refused to be accountable for anything that they may have neglected to do and the consequences that happened therein. Oof. Right? It's infuriating. It, yeah. I'm just watching you go. <laughs> I'm very animated right she now. Is. Yeah. I'm sorry you guys can't see this, but <laughs> one day we'll YouTube this and I'll I'll we'll always dress appropriately. <laughs> when the State Bureau of Investigations officers began investigating the case in late 2013, so remember, a year later that's when they brought these guys in. They also interviewed residents of Hawthorne at the View. That's the apartment complex. It's a very long name. One resident who spoke to Delaney said it was clear that these guys, the State Bureau of Investigations investigators, were way better trained than their Chapel Hill counterparts had been. The agent who interviewed her asked questions that elicited way more useful information than she had recalled. So these guys were able to come in and talk to neighbors and get useful information, whereas the Chapel Hill Police Department asked very surface things and then just left. Hmm. So in downtown Chapel Hill, Delaney, that's the reporter who was covering this whole thing, talked to the owner of a towing service who had con- who had the contract for the Thrills parking lot. That's the club that didn't serve underage drinkers, but totally did. He had set up a system of security cameras to monitor activity in the club's parking lot that might have possibly recorded anything that happened outside of the club involving Faith and Karina while they were there that morning or after they left. So the whole parking lot was surveyed. We only saw video of them leaving the club at this point. Remember, we saw them leave. That was it. But this guy was like, no, no, no. I have cameras everywhere. The police did not ask to see this until shortly before Delaney wrote the article, almost 19 months after the crime. Oh, Jesus. By that time, he told her, any footage from that night had long since been recorded over. No. Yep. Want to jump off the roof yet? Yeah. There's more. <laughs> the court ordered the records unsealed in July of 2014. Media organizations were able to review and report on the search warrant applications and the investigative notes that had supported them, with most names redacted, fair enough, for not only the residences and cars, but Faith's phone, computer, Facebook records, and bank account. Also released was the transcript of Karina's 911 call, and the content of the early morning text messages, as well as the timeline of Karina and Faith's actions the night before the body was found, which we gave you all in the beginning of this episode. In September of 2014, almost two years after Faith's death, the autopsy report was finally released. It confirmed what was on her death certificate, that she had died of blunt force trauma to the head. She had numerous cuts and bruises, as well as blood under her fingernails, suggesting she had struggled with her killer. The DNA taken from the semen was matched to the DNA elsewhere at the scene. They do not say under her fingernails. Remember that. They say elsewhere at the scene. But like I said, this is only a version of the autopsy report. What the absolute hell are they hiding? 
It's been nearly eight years. I mean, you if you fucked up, that's fine. You need to start saying that you did. Mm-hmm. Because you cannot move forward. If you're just accountable and you say, like, well, we didn't do our due diligence. Let's go back. Fair enough. We're starting from there. But, like, you got to stop doing all this creepy nonsense. So did they tested the blood, though, under the fingernails? Or I have it, no, it's not clear? I have no evidence that they actually performed that test. Just that they found it. They said it was there. They said that DNA evidence in places at the scene were the same person. So basically all of the semen was the same dude. But they never mention the stuff under her fingernails. I don't know that they even DNA tested it. Yeah, this goes back also to um, Morgan Ingram. Like her parents said the same thing. Did you look under her fingernails? Was there anything there? And they were like, oh, no. Which like doesn't go in accordance with my theories about that case. But still, like do your due diligence. Just do it. It's not that hard. It's one extra test. Mm-hmm. <sighs> now that they've released the evidence, the public soon discovers that some of it is, like, super weird. First, there was a note at the scene. I hate this one. Yeah. It was on a white paper bag, which they have basically confirmed, but not 100% confirmed, was from a local 24-hour takeout joint, which adds up. You're out drinking all night. You get shit food on the way home. Mm-hmm. And the note read... I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous, in all caps. And it's, I'm not stupid, I think new line, bitch, new line, jealous, right? It's like stacked like that Mm -hmm. on a paper bag in ballpoint pen. People have analyzed this thing to death. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Crime Watch Daily had an expert, her name is Peggy Walla, look at the photos of the note, and she noted that it was clean of the blood reportedly found splattered all over the room, suggesting it could have been written either away from the crime scene or beforehand. The writer may have been using their non-dominant hand in an attempt to disguise their handwriting. Walla believes the writer was particularly agitated, likely to the point of homicidal rage by being called stupid. I don't think that's true. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah. She thinks that, like, also most of it was written before. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not jealous, bitch. And then somebody else replied, stupid. Like, it was an exchange yeah. of notes on a bag. Yeah. Which is wild to me. It, yeah. Well, because they, I guess they were analyzing the handwriting and yeah. it looked slightly different. We'll include a picture of this. Yeah. Um. One of the thoughts I had was if they did walk home and did not take a cab because i also thought like if they took a cab like maybe one of the drivers would have said something like mm-hmm. hey i i took them home or yeah so, you know you don't know um but maybe they walked to this fast food place maybe or maybe faith had her car like they mentioned her car maybe it was just farther away than i i didn't really clock distances but like yeah that would that would add time to their drive home was stopping to get something to eat for sure right it could have been crowded when the bars let out Drive-throughs are crowded. Yeah, because we don't we don't necessarily know if I mean, do we know her alcohol level? It was very low. It was point oh two. Okay, but but that's at the time of her autopsy. Oh, true. I have no idea what it was. We we don't have a time of death for her either. They right. never even released that. Right. So I can't even say like, well, if she stopped drinking at say, I don't know, one thirty, two o'clock, and she was killed at six or seven o'clock in the morning. Perhaps her blood alcohol level was lower. Maybe she didn't drink that much that night. Right. There's no record of if she was a drinker or not. We know her friend, Karina, her roommate, I should say, had 
admitted to her stomach ache being from drinking too much. Yeah. So we know she has something to drink. There was alcohol paraphernalia in the apartment. That's all we know. Yeah. So it's really hard to say. Okay. I just, the note seems to me like it could have been anything, too. What if they were texting that guy that was like a mutual love interest and they was like, I'm not stupid. They're like passing notes while they were talking to him or something. Right. It could have been absolutely anything. And I don't know it necessarily indicates homicidal rage of being called stupid. Yeah. Because you can say that a thousand different ways. Of course. It, different. it could be funny. It could yeah. be angry. It could be. Absolutely. And so much of this case is that. Yeah. So much of it is taking really bland evidence or anything evidence, not even bland, just like it could be anything and just kind of like pushing it into what you wanting it to be. It makes sense when you surround it with stuff that makes it make sense. Right. But I could look at you and say, oh my God, Leslie, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Then if you wind up dead, everyone's like, Holly said she's going to kill her on the podcast, so she probably killed her. Well, now you know. Knowing it's half the battle. Just an example. There's also this fun little fact nugget. On a September 23rd, 2016 episode of the ABC News program 2020, Chapel Hill police released an image generated by Parabon Nanolabs, a genetic testing company in Reston, Virginia, of what the suspect who left the semen might look like purely based on the phenotype in his DNA profile. Parabon's president told ABC that Snapshot, the program his company used to create the image, predicts eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, face morphology, and ancestry. The image included was a chart listing the probability that the suspect had the traits he was assigned. According to the image, the suspect was, quote, very strongly Native American and European mixed ancestry, or Latino. Most of his genetic markers point to Mexican, Colombian, and Iberian ancestry, with some other South American and African countries making up the balance. So anything, basically. <laughs> Parabon believed that over 80% conf- with, with over 80% confidence that the suspect would have a skin tone in the olive range, the big old range, with very few freckles or none at all, and black hair. It did not make any predictions as to his height or weight, which are both super important. So good job, guys. This really does little to nothing for me, because while your DNA does in fact carry the code for what you look like, it can only predict it to a certain degree when you're just looking at that DNA. Mm -hmm. Sometimes phenotypes are extremely accurate, but sometimes they look absolutely nothing like the person in question. Some people favor recessive genes. There are cases of white couples having black babies for this exact reason. Right. You have recessive genes, sometimes they come out, and your phenotype would say, like, that's a white person, but it wasn't necessarily. I mean, theoretically, I don't know, you guys, I don't have a degree in genetics, but these are things that I have read. It happened on Shameless. So So it must be real. (laughs) One last fact I will add, and this is just my personal speculation and how much I've read on other stuff, is that there is a way a man can leave semen at the scene of a crime, be DNA tested, and not positively identified. 20% of men are something called a non-secretor, which I know it's the grossest word, which means their blood type is not present in their semen. This is how the Golden State Killer and the super-requested psychopath Andre Chikatilo went uncaught for such a long time. Their semen was collected. They were DNA tested. They couldn't find him. Then there's a last link in this chain that I've saved for Leslie. 
before we go into a theory roundup because it leads into it really nicely. Um, and it's something that was discovered actually much later, right? It was like a few years after the case uh, the murder had actually happened that this person turned in um, a voicemail. No, so this it was turned in soon, but oh, it was, was it? only brought out several years later. So it was one of the sealed case yes. things. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so basically, um, the morning of one of Faith's friends wakes up and sees a missed call and a voicemail from Faith. So she listens to the voicemail, and it's pretty inaudible. It sounds like a butt dial, and she's right. gotten butt dials from Faith before. So she deletes it. Several hours later, she finds out that Faith has been killed. Oh, so shit. So she calls the car- This I thought this was really cool. Like, she thought fast on her feet. Yeah, she, she really did, because yeah. she just deleted it, and then like, whoop. Yeah, so she called the carrier, and they restored it for her, and she called the police she brought it in yeah that's a good friend mm-hmm. she, they listened to it and they saw on the timestamp that it was at 1 a.m which would have put her at the club right and because it was pretty inaudible kind of sounded like there was music in the background sounds and, clubby yeah and so they are like well this isn't around the time when she died this because her friend was thinking like what if this was like her alcohol? last moments yeah. right yeah so they were like, no, it doesn't really sound like anything. We can't get anything from it. And that was that. Never heard anything about it again, but she kept the copy of it. I think she may have Smart. already. I think she may have sent it to her fa- to Faith's father. I'm not sure. Several years later, journalist from Crime Watch Daily. Oh, we love you, Billy Jensen. <laughs> uh, they are going through this case and they find a note about the voicemail. So they first contacted the police who, and they asked if they analyzed this, and they never really got a straight response. Yeah, of course not, because they just say, we're working real hard. We have a lot of evidence. We've done some stuff. Yes. So they call the friend who, um, I, we are keeping her name out of it because she had asked to Yeah, she doesn't. Anonymous. That's, fa- that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so they got a copy of the recording. They gave it to this guy named Arlo West, who is an audio expert. Um, they present him as... Specifically yes. a butt dial expert. Yeah. Yes. It's really <laughs> That's funny. a job. Yeah. We I think he's an time. audio expert who has done cases like this. Yeah. And like the roundup after the episode of Crime Watch, like this guy tests like audio recognition software and stuff. Yeah. Like you said he was a butt dial yeah, expert. They tried to make him like, this is all he does. <laughs> he's like, butt dials are my specialty. Yes. But he has done this before. He has very good equipment. And he also solved a case based on another butt dial. He, yes. He, I think he solved several. But yeah. there were some major ones that he was able to. Yeah, the one he talks about in Crime Watch, like, he was the linchpin in the case. Yes. He's so cool. He is cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, he claims that a known software issue can cause discrepancies when it comes to timestamps. So he was saying, like, on, the, on these particular phones... Like some of the timestamps could have actually yeah. been coming in like within two or three hours. He said sometimes difference. it switches to a different time zone too, right? Yes. Like he was like, mm-hmm. oh, it could have been like saying this was Pacific time when really it was right. Eastern and time. I think the friend corroborated that story was saying like she's noticed that on her phone where the wow. she'll get a voicemail and it doesn't really match up with maybe the call time. What time zone is North Carolina? Are they Eastern time like us? us? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're Just below checking. us. Just making sure. 
Arlo took the um took away all the background noises and the voicemail stripped it till only the bare wordings could be heard he made a transcript of the conversation and said that the conversation took place between faith a woman and at least two other men so um I feel like this podcast is going to be longer than we thought it was going to be. Way longer. Yeah, but, okay, so we're going to take this down because I actually have two versions of this conversation. And this one is Arlo's version. It's scary, too. Yeah. Um, And, again, you can listen to the audio. Um, You can find the audio for this. We'll see if we can find a link. Yeah. Um, I'll just put a link up to the episode of Crime Watch, too. You guys can watch the whole thing if you want. Yeah. Okay, so here is the transcript how he heard it. Female, you want to mess with my boyfriend. Faith, I don't want to, Rosie. Male, all this bullshit you're going to answer to, inaudible. Female, fuck you, I'm pissed, inaudible. Male, inaudible, good thing, inaudible, Dave's house. It would be broadcast Big Mike. Female, you motherfucker. Faith, no. Female, I'm going to kick your face, bitch. I figured out that's bullshit. Female, don't ever think that I would have believed you. Lies, inaudible, at you, inaudible. Faith, ow. Female, ow, in kind of a joke-like mocking manner. Female, your talk sure ain't funny, you know. He's gonna, inaudible, you and fuck you. I will fuck you, bitch. Faith, inaudible scream. Female, mm mm-hmm. Faith, let me go. Male, inaudible. Faith, help me. Male, you fuck her, I'll, inaudible. Male, inaudible, I'll fuck her, inaudible. Faith, inaudible, ow, my head. Female, inaudible, do it. Male, inaudible, I think she's dying. Male, do it anyhow. Male, inaudible, get the duct tape, inaudible. Then they can tie up Faith. Faith, please, inaudible, me, my hands are on fire, help. Male, put her hands behind her head. Male, I'll untie them, her hands look like they are on fire, inaudible, I've got to hide them. Faith, I can't believe that you really did it, Rosie. Faith, inaudible, get off me. Male, inaudible, female, inaudible. Male, inaudible, I don't know. Faith, inaudible, ow. Female, sit up and inaudible. Male, inaudible. Faith, screaming, help. Male, rapping. Because inaudible seems to be the one inaudible you. Female, fuck you. Male, inaudible, now I'll fuck her. Female, inaudible. Faith, inaudible, no. Male, rapping. Female, what do you think, inaudible? You, I like you better, cunt. Oof. Yikes! So that was, okay, so that was um, most of the voicemail that he got. And they believe, the people of Crime Watch and Arlo West, believe that if the timestamp was wrong, this would have put them back at the house and this would have been during the killing. If you give it a three-hour time difference, it could. Yes. Mm-hmm. So... There is that. A lot, a lot of people have listened to this. People with equipment of their own have listened to it. Yeah. And many people, there are some lines, I will say, there are some lines that I do get out of it, Mm -hmm. I can hear. And I do agree that there's a couple people involved 
in that voicemail. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but a lot of people do not agree with this at all. And they do think that the timestamp might actually be correct, but that it it is something that's happening at the club. What some believe, too, is it could have been like a start. Like a, this could give a lot of answers to what's about to happen. Right. So I got this next one. It's from a Reddit member, Jamie and Claire. Uh, they is did, this the thing you sent me? Uh, I don't know. I don't think. No, no, no. I, I didn't send you this. They didn't like the uh, version of the audio, and they state in the post, um, quote, experts have deciphered the audio and transcribed something that I found completely implausible and self-fulfilling, hearing unintelligible names that just happen to be connected to the case and strange, gory details that don't make much sense about duct tape, hands on fire, throwing something in the river. It seems to insinuate that she is actually being raped and killed in the audio. Uh, They didn't seem to notice that half of what they were hearing were lyrics to music playing in the club. From what I've seen online, others feel the same way. No one can hear what they heard. Uh, So they decided to decipher it themselves. They state the audio quality is very bad as the music in the background is quite loud. Um, Mm -hmm. And near as they can figure, Faith was going home from the club with someone else's ex boy like ex or their then boyfriend and was confronted about it and got it and got quite physical and they think that maybe a bouncer had come to ask them to leave in the end so interesting this one it um, does sound like they're in the club and i should mention the um eric was also mm -hmm. a rapper yeah, yeah. Like he, a like lot a of low his. low key rapper. <laughs> yeah, well, not super low key in his mind, but a lot of his social media is like about his music and some people suspect his involvement in Faith's murder simply because he calls women bitches a lot. Yeah. But they, they think like, oh, well, he's a rapper. That could be him. But it does. And what's his name? Arlo West, the guy that did this? Yeah. He, he says it's a T-Pain song. And yes. then he plays the T-Pain song, and it sounds just like it. It does, yeah. So. Some of it, too, almost sounds like if they actually walked outside of the club, it yeah. would have sounded like a door opened and shut a couple times because totally. the music gets louder and quiet. And mm-hmm. it almost does make sense. Like a bouncer would have come out at one point for the other male's voice um, and been, like, you know, trying to break them up. And there are a couple lines that the guy, um, whoever deciphered the this Reddit poster who deciphered um, – their version, there are some lines that line up, but it do, it makes a little bit more sense. Okay. Um, do you want me to go through that one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. Our next thing is like a roundup of theories, so we're basically in it now. All right. So here's the other version of it. And again, you guys can listen. I will put a link to the voicemail and maybe you can yeah. kind of go along with it. No, we'll definitely, we'll definitely put a link where people can listen. Okay. So the transcript goes, music playing loudly in background. Woman, don't touch my boyfriend. Man, unintelligible denial or argument. Faith, yeah, right. Woman, put down the phone. Man, never want to fuck you. Inaudible. Woman, you motherfucker. Man, you were just inaudible. What kind of person? Inaudible. Woman, inaudible. Go fuck your little whore. Inaudible. Jesus. Faith, why? Inaudible. Woman, inaudible. We'll kick in your face, bitch, if you try to pull that bullshit. Don't ever do that, okay? You're right in front of me. I'll have to be rude. Faith, ow. Woman, mocking. Ow. You're talking funny, inaudible. Faith, scream. Woman, fuck you, bitch. 
Man, okay, okay, let her go. Unintelligible. Faith to the man. Help me. Woman, don't be a pussy. Put up a fight. Man, antagonizing, unintelligible. Take her home and fuck her right in the ass and you're not going to fucking know whether I come home or not. Ugh. Wild. Woman, fine, do it. Man, I will all night. Woman, go to hell. Walks away across club. Louder music is heard in other people's conversations. Woman has then come back to confront them a second time. Faith, really? All right. Woman, come at me. Very loud music as they pass speakers. Woman, fuck you too. Inaudible. Woman, you liar. Man, hey, shut the fuck up, bitch. So much swearing. Inaudible. Man, no way. Inaudible. We're leaving. Faith, get off of me. Man, let go of her. Inaudible. Faith, fuck you. Woman, let go of me. Bouncer, I'm going to need you to back up. Inaudible, arguing and yelling. Now a new girl, possibly the friend of the roommate she was trying to contact. Right, um, I should just break in for one second and mention that when they say Rosie, they mean Karina. Oh, yeah. Sorry, her roommate's last name is Rosario, and I guess she went by her last name or by Rosie at times. It is only ever referred to when they talk about this voicemail. In no other information did I read her referred to as that, but apparently... That is a nickname she had. Mm -hmm. So the people in this voicemail are speculated to be her roommate, Karina, Mm -hmm. Faith, Eric, Eric, and then possibly another male voice. Yes. Who could be either a friend of Eric's or a bouncer. Okay. So just just for clarification, that's what we're listening to here. I just realized we hadn't really made that clear Mm -hmm. and. And you know what? Nobody does when you're le- listening to any other sources either. Like, everyone's like, oh, they say Rosie, so it's clear who that is. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Not until you, like, say, oh, her roommate, that's who we think it is. Like, nobody ever says that's her nickname and everybody calls her that. Mm-hmm. But just to throw that in there before we go any further, that's yeah. who we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the end of the of the transcript anyway. Kind of ends with, like, them space- Faith's crying and the new... This new girl that it sounds like a new girl showed up. It could be the same girl saying, like, I think we better inaudible. Okay, I think we better. So a lot of people had listened to that and felt like they heard some of the same things. Mm -hmm. And it matches a little bit if it did happen at the club. But it just happens like there was definitely an encounter. People were upset and they went home after. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. I. It's so hard to decipher this. It's definitely scary to listen to. Nobody's having a good time. Or are they? <laughs> right. I got the owls are there. Like the owls are there, and they're scary because you know she's murdered later that night. Right. But it could also be her friend like pushing her and her being like, "Ow!" Yeah. It, there's so many ways it could be deciphered. And if you say, "Here's this audio footage. It's of a murder," I'll be like, "Yeah, it's of a murder." I'm told. I agree. Mm-hmm. And then if you like had not told me that and previously said, here's this audio footage. It's of people being drunk and weird at a club. I would do the same thing. Yep, that's what that is. Nothing happened. Yeah, exactly. It was really hard to subscribe any real meaning to it, but it's possible. So theories. This is where we round up the theories people have and that we have. So one is that, and this one's kind of wild, that that Karina planned the whole thing. She was jealous of Faith. And she wanted to get rid of her. There's the one woman from Reddit said, like, she was in love with Faith. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so she ended up doing the dirty work 
and having these two guys help her cover it up. Mm-hmm. Or doing some of it and then having Eric, like, actually kill her. Because, like, it would take some strength to kill a woman with a Bacardi bottle. Mm-hmm. And then having this other, whoever this third-party guy is that just jizzes all over the town, come in and and, and do that. <sighs> it's nuts. It's totally nuts. Um, then there are other theories that it happened. You said one that you said was, like, it was a crime of passion between Karina and Faith. Where yeah. she got mad at Faith and... The fight happened, and she had, Faith ended up dead, and then she panicked. Mm-hmm. Right? That was yeah. That was my other thought. Like they just had a big argument, and she did hit her over the head, and then realized she was dead, and maybe called Eric in, who she was maybe just desperate. To- right? She was like, "This guy will help me, and he's crazy and violent." Yeah, he'll and he loves me, and he'll <laughs> cover me. <laughs> yeah. So that could have been it. And I mean, I guess if, like you said, if he has undetectable jizz, then... It's possible! (laughs) If you're a non-secretor, you can technically get your junk all over the town and people will not be able to identify you. Maybe he was like, that's a win. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise! Well, there's also a very confusing thing in the fact that they find all this genetic material from a man, but there is no documented indication that Faith was raped. Right. They indicate that there was possible sexual misconduct, but they never use the words. It just looks, the scene looks like, if she was not raped, then it looks like it was made. It was staged to look like she was. And just to throw off people. Like but they even, also don't say they find semen inside her. They say they right. find it on her and in other places in the apartment. Right. Because apparently that guy ran around and just put it everywhere. And the fact that someone could be a non-secretor is, again, my personal theory. I haven't read it anywhere, but historically, it does happen. That's why it took so long to catch other people, because they couldn't detect them through that. So it is a possibility that has not been examined. Mm. Regardless, a lot of people think her roommate knows a lot more than she let on. And it should be known that both... Karina and Eric, within a week after the murder, canceled all their socials, Mm -hmm. and Karina moved back to New Jersey. She was like, bye, I can't be here. Neither one of them will talk to any media or continue to talk to police or anything. They just shut it down and walked away. You cannot find interviews with them. They don't exist. Right. And that is a guilt by omission type thing. Like, you're Mm -hmm. you're not saying you didn't do it. You're not saying you did do it. You're not saying anything. And that's so hard because it could be the total opposite because it could be them really stressed out and sad and not – because every time they want to go out and talk yeah. about it, people are attacking them thinking that they were part of it. So it, it could it, go either way. It sure could. And that's the problem with this case. Everything is so very up in the air and I feel like we haven't given you guys any resolution. Mm-mm. But that's that is all the information. <laughs> yeah, that's all the information we have about Faith's case as of now and the – Chapel Hill police keep saying that they are hot on the case. They have it still open. They're doing good work. And there's lots of things they're looking at. There's just no evidence that any of us are allowed to see that that's actually happening. (sighs) In my opinion, if I had, if I was gun to my head, had to say what I think happened, I would say that I think that Eric was for sure involved. I think 
that her roommate might have known more than she indicated, but I don't necessarily think she planned it. I think her 911 call sounds sincere, and Mm -hmm. I think she was horrified. And I think maybe she wanted to distance herself from, like, the worst event she'd ever walked into into her life. Yeah. Oh, I did have – this was my theory, actually, through listening to this. Yeah. Was that Karina left. She went to another guy's house, right? Yeah, she did. Right? Oh, a guy picked her up and then took her to another guy's house. So Eric, who was hanging out with them, came over, didn't find her, and questioned Faith. And when Faith may have ended up telling her where she was. Or was like, I'm not going to tell you. Stay away from my roommate. Yeah, either way, like, whether things came out, he just, you know, continued to get angry with her and actually was the only person that is i think that's definitely possible and rape is rage like it's not because you think someone's hot nine out of ten times it's because someone is angry and that's how it manifests right so if he was mad enough at her which which we have seen that he was he could have both manifested his anger in just physical violence and also sexual violence that makes perfect sense it adds up Mm -hmm. and the last thing that i think definitely plays a major part in this case is that there was a level of police incompetence in the investigation that they didn't want people to know. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. It I seems could. as though they really didn't do their due diligence and then realized afterwards that that could maybe be a problem and didn't want to show their work, basically. Yeah. Because there just isn't any other reason to hide so much of the investigation, especially when there seemed to be so very much evidence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, this week we're so gobsmacked. We don't know how to deal with this one. No. Y'all stumped us. We're done. We'll do something with like a a resolution next week. (laughs) Okay. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. How about we... Have some toasts. Yes, please. Because we have a little bit of tequila left. We have no resolution for you. And I really wish you did we did. And also, I want to hear from you. What did you think? We will put a post up in our Facebook group and I want to know what your theories are because they are just as valid as anybody else's, honestly. Yes. <laughs> so let's toast to people. First, um, in this case, I would say obviously Faith, because she's Mm-hmm. The victim, and we always give a toast to the victim. That's who, yeah. That's I think that's it. Yes. I think there's anyone else I'm looking at going, well, I mean, you poor thing. Her dad. Yeah. Her cute dad, who, like, also clung on to the last voicemail she sent him to this day. Mm-hmm. Like, this is seven years later. She had sent him, a, left him a voicemail, like, a few days prior. I think it was his, they had celebrated a birthday or something. Mm-hmm. And the voicemail is really cute. It's like, I love you, Daddy, just letting you know this. And he plays it every single day just to listen to her say that. Breaks my heart. I know. It breaks my heart, too. So a toast to Faith and to Roland. And we have three new Patrons, oh, guys, three is my lucky number. Oh my I god, love this! This is amazing. Yeah, it's a banner <laughs> week for us. I'm so excited. So, um, who do, who do we have? You you do yours first. Okay, we have uh, Katie Sindel, and I apologize if I didn't say your last name wrong. I realized that we've never said your last name. We love you. We, we do. love you, we Katie. We love you, and she's helping me with my wedding plans. Even and I love it better. 
Uh, we also have Deanna Wilson. Love you, Deanna. Thank you oh, for supporting yes, us. Deanna, I want that hangover. <laughs> your hangover cheesesteak. Yeah, go get all your food from oh. Jack's Shack and hit the road. Jack's their food truck. If you are local to us, <laughs> their food is so good. Yeah, and I Leslie mean, and I talked about it for 45 minutes before we, did. <laughs> before we started. <laughs> You're part of Leslie's life goals. Yes. I have never eaten it, and but I want this hangover. It is a cheesesteak with chicken tenders, mozzarella sticks, and French fries. But, Deanna, I would like to add, I think maybe you should put some mac and cheese on that. <laughs> <laughs> that is the sluttiest sandwich, and I'm here yes. for it. Way to go. Oh, man. We really did talk about it for a really long time. Okay. Okay. Who's Who else? Oh, Dr. Lisa Diano. Yes. We love Lisa. She has been our um, in-house podcast doctor since the, like, jump since day one. She's great and super fun, and we love you guys so much. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you. Guys, we have merch now. So oh, that's go order right. Some merch. Please check out um, our socials. There's a link on, I think, all of them for our merchandise at this yeah, point, right? Yeah, we're still waiting for Instagram to approve us, but we're on Facebook. And if you have any issues, just message us and I can send you a link. We have hoodies, t shirts, tank tops. Oh, I want a hoodie so bad. Can yeah. I buy it? You can, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to buy it. I want that hoodie. <laughs> And you should all buy them too, especially because Halloween time is coming up and they will look so cute in your fall wardrobe. And spooky. Cute and spooky. Yeah. Cupy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if we went about our lives not anticipating the danger that could lurk around every corner, we, we would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Leslie, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And then if you wind up dead, everyone's like, Holly said she's going to kill her on the podcast, so she probably killed her. Well, now you know.